0: Romans chapter 6 is where we're headed, but has Bibles, if you need a Bible, we'll actually take a running start at it from Romans chapter 5, but it's good to be back. David Mercer from Calvary Flathead Valley in Montana sends his greetings, his love, his warm affection. I think it was, it might have been nine years ago that he did our men's retreat, um, and, and it was a blessing to be able to return the favor. But on the subject of men's retreats and people named David, um, one of the things I neglected to announce was our men's conference. We're not gonna do a full-on retreat this fall, but man, I, I came back just very, very, very convinced. We need to do more than nothing. Um, so we're going to get together for a day. We're going to invite all of the usual churches that we invite out to our men's retreat. Um, and we'll do a day like we did last year at Wheat State Conference Center, same place we were. Last year it was Mike Fernandez. This year it's Pastor Dave Fitzgerald, uh, Calvary Chapel of Greater St. Louis. He, uh, the, the theme that the Lord laid on his heart, he got back to me immediately and said, yes, I have something for the guys. Brothers born for adversity, from uh, Proverbs 17, 17. Man, isn't that just fitting? Because, because what do we see outside of these walls but adversity of every shape and form and in every context? So looking forward to getting together with a bunch of smelly, hairy guys, worshiping the Lord and hearing from his word, because we need it, because it's important. But when I got back last week, when I got back from Montana, I got back to the news that the Wichita City Council, in their infinite wisdom, has decriminalized marijuana. And of course, that's just one baby step on the way to what we've known for a while is coming, full-on legalization. I don't think anybody is shocked. Um, but, But the question that I'm getting, is it okay for Christians? I mean, if if it's going to be legal and stuff, it's not a new question. I've been getting it since Colorado. I've been getting it since, well, actually, Montana. But can I partake? Can I, as a Christ follower, smoke weed, consume edibles? And tempting as it is to do like a whole message just on that subject, where we are in Scripture, what Paul has to tell us in Romans chapter 6 this morning is that's the wrong question. Rome, Pastor Joshua was here last week, so let's take a moment, let's remind ourselves where we were when we left off. Chapter 5, Paul had reached the, the peak, the summit. First service, I said the high point, and I got booed, so I'm not going to do that this service. But, I know, I, I repented, and now I have to repent all over again. But, but man, Paul builds to this amazing auspicious truth. Verse 8, God demonstrates his own love toward us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And if he, of course, he goes on and he expands on that thought. But go to the end of the chapter, go to, chapter go to verse 20, where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. When we were God's enemies, there was grace waiting for us. As sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And we, and we said then, and I say again, it's like take off your shoes. We're on hallowed ground. I mean, all of Scripture is God-breathed, but man, when we read about his marvelous grace toward us, we're saved by grace through faith and that not of ourselves, It's a gift of God, and it's for the glory of God. Amen? But but having declared that, he's worked his way up, he's he's constructed that argument, he's established that, he's proclaimed that, Paul knows, sooner or later, there will be those who will try to pervert that. To pervert that precious truth that we're saved by grace through faith to the glory of God. There will be those who are going to say, well, okay, if that's true... If grace is good because it glorifies God, because, because it's God doing what no one else could, what no one else would, and if it were our sin that made grace necessary, well, then we should go out and sin a lot so that God can minister a lot of grace and get a lot of glory. Except, no, Paul said two weeks ago at the beginning of chapter six absolutely not. Why would we want any part of something, anything, that Jesus died to rescue us from? No, Paul said, verse 12, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lusts. No, do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. Yes, present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not, must not, have dominion over you. For you are not under law, but under grace. And we get to act like it. We get to live like it. We get to live lives that celebrate it. That's where we were two weeks ago. Verse 15, Paul continues in the same vein. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? Certainly not. Same vein, slightly different point, but the same general idea. Let's keep going. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. You obeyed the gospel. The gospel isn't an idea to be assented to. It's a commandment to be obeyed. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you did And because you did, you were set free from sin. And because you've been set free from sin, verse 18, you became slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. I'm trying to put this in terms that you'll understand. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now do this, present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness, for sanctification, for godliness. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. What fruit did you have? You had dead fruit. You had rotten fruit. You had smelly fruit. But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness, good fruit, and the end, everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Slightly different vein. I'm sorry, slightly different point, but the same vein. Paul is falling all over himself, right? He's working really hard to make sure he gets his point across, to make sure that he's 100% crystal clear in what he's saying. And and, and better way to put it, 100% crystal clear in what he's asking Because he's asking a question here in the bottom of the chapter, in the second half of this passage. He's putting a question before us. He's reminding us of a question that we all face every moment of every day Who are you going to serve? Who are you going to serve? A year or so ago, a little bit more than a year ago, I had an opportunity to speak to a group of university students, Um, and it was a retreat setting, and I had just gotten done doing what I was doing, and they were going to break out into small groups for discussion, the way that we do a lot of times in retreats. And as they're going, I held up the, the schedule, and I said, hey, just a reminder, take the time that you need. Make this a great discussion. Yeah, you've got a schedule, but the schedule is a servant. Don't let it be your master. what I was trying to convey was that the conversation, the discussion they were going to have was more important than holding to the schedule, holding to the time. But I said that, and the entire room, like, tensed up. And I'm looking at them, and they're looking at me, and they kind of shuffle out, but they're looking at me. And I said to them, once they were gone, I said to the person who had organized the retreat, what just happened? He said, oh, he talked about servants and masters. I said, yeah, He said, that's the language of oppression. I feel like maybe I've told this story before, but now I'm a slave to the story, so I've got to keep going. He said, we don't talk about masters and servants anymore. I wanted to ask, if you go down to the electrical engineering department, do they not talk about master circuits and slave circuits? But I was a guest, so I didn't. (sighs) But, but, But another place, another time, I would have made the point that Paul is making here. We all serve something always. The fact that that slavery was practiced by our country historically and that it still is a reality around the world, including some parts of our own country, and the fact that it's evil and sin and utterly reprehensible doesn't make Paul's point any less factual. We all live for something. Religious or not, we all worship something. We all serve something. The only question, the only variable is what? Who or what will you serve today? And I get that that's a touchy subject. I get that that's... But, but, but if it's touchy for us, think about this. How much more of a hot-button topic would it have been in Paul's day? Paul's writing to the church in Rome. The population of Rome at the time that Paul is writing was about a third slaves. Add to that people who had been slaves, who had been freed from slavery, they'd either purchased their freedom or been granted their freedom. It's likely, conservatively, more than half of the people in the church, more than half of the group Paul is writing to, had firsthand experience with slavery as slaves. They were or had been slaves, which Paul knew, and yet he's not dancing around the issue, we shouldn't either. We all serve something. If we, and, and, and if we can get past phony virtual, uh, virtual virtue signaling, and talk about what's real. We have to admit that, right? We see that. You and I observe it every day. It would be dopey to not talk about it. We all know, let's, let's ground this in an example, we all know people who are slaves to work, don't we? slaves to their job. Every decision they make is with their career in mind, their boss in view, their next promotion is a consideration, their work is where they find their identity. They serve their job. You know people like that. I know you do. You also know people for whom it's the opposite of that. They serve the opposite of work. They serve leisure, free time, me time, and the freedom to make choices without constraint about what they do with their me-time. They worship, they serve their independence. I could keep going, I don't think I need to. We're on the same page, yeah. You know people, some of us are people, who are slaves to drugs, slaves to gambling, slaves to gaming. Yes, that's a thing. You know people who, who worship anger. Rage is their drug, you know people who are slaves to acceptance, what people think is of surpassing importance. You know people who pursue power at all costs. Control is how they know they're okay. You know people who absolutely have to be right. That is their God, that is their oxygen. And, and, and all of this is just facts, right? I'm just talking about what's true, what's observable, what we all know. So what Paul is doing in the second, part of the second half of chapter 6, he's taking what we see, what we know, he's organizing it. He's simplifying it. He's taking these observations, he's, he's reducing it into a dichotomy, into, into to an either-or statement. There's God and there's sin. And he says that a few different ways. Verse 16, he says there's sin and there's obedience. Obedience to God. Verse 17, he says, there's sin and there's righteousness unto God. Verse 22, he says, there's sin and there's God. Three different ways of saying the same thing. Every single one of us at any given time is either serving sin or serving God. Can't do both. Every one of us at any given time is offering ourselves to sin or offering ourselves to God. Can't do both. At any given time, we're all worshiping God or worshiping our sin. We cannot do both. Okay, hang on, Paul. You're getting a little, I don't know, extreme here. Getting a little radical, Paul. Said every sinner ever. Because <laughs> Paul's just affirming what we're seeing. Paul's just acknowledging what Jesus declared. Jesus has a conversation with some of his followers, some of whom were followers and some of whom were just followers, who rolled up on Jesus and said, what is, what is this conversation, what is this, this slavery, this bondage, this, what are you talking about? We're Abraham's descendants. This is John 8, verse 32. We're Abraham's descendants. We've never been in bondage to anyone. Sin? Moi? You're not talking about us, Jesus. He answered them, verse 34. And he said, yeah, I I am talking about you. Whoever commits sin, whoever practices sin, is a slave of sin. And the unspoken implication is, apart from the cross, that's all of us. That's Jesus' point, Paul's point. He's amplifying this. He's saying, on this side of the cross, even on this side of the cross, That is still an awful lot of us an awful lot of the time. Us Romans, us Americans, us Kansans. We don't like to think of it that way. We can still be slaves to sin. No, that's that's the people out there. We're believers. They're slaves to sin. Out, Out there, not in here. In here, we're free. Not necessarily. Not all of us, and not always. If we look again at our passage, Paul draws some interesting parallels between these two forms of slavery, these two bondages slavery to God, slavery to sin. Look again at verse 19. Just as you presented your members, just as, so he's drawing a comparison. Just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now, trade that for what's behind door number two, present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness, for godliness, for sanctification. What is he saying? He's saying that neither of these slaveries, slavery to God, slavery to sin, neither of them is static, they're both dynamic. They both grow and change and evolve. We were born into slavery, right? Paul established that that fact in painstaking detail earlier in the book. We were born into sin. Verse 19, Paul says, "But, but, but then something happened. He says, as we sinned, we got better and better at it. We started off as amateurs, but after a while, we were on the pro tour. As we presented our members, our bodies, as slaves of uncleanness, what happened? Uncleanness begat uncleanness, begat lawlessness, begat wickedness. And that makes sense, right? Because sin's a liar. Always promising, never delivering, never fulfilling, but telling us, oh, because you didn't sin the right kind of sin, try again. You didn't sin enough sin, try harder. You didn't sin the right combination of sins, go back and do it again. You didn't sin with the right person, or at the right time, or in the right place, try again, try again, try again. And as we do, we get better and better at sin. Sin begets wickedness. And whatever we are serving has more and more of a hold on us. Slavery doesn't stay static. It grows and evolves, and it grips us tighter and tighter. But the same is true, and this is Paul's point, the same is true when we turn from sin and serve God. The same process unfolds. When, verse 17, we obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which we were delivered, when we believed the gospel, when we said yes to Jesus, that started a parallel process. We became, verse 18, slaves of righteousness. At least we said we did. We said, Father, I repent of my sin. Father, I love you. Father, I choose you. I choose to worship you, to follow you, to serve you. We said those things, right? Okay, then, Paul says, then serve him. Then do it. Then present your members, your bodies, your Thoughts, yourselves as slaves of righteousness for holiness, and see what happens. See how you grow. See how you change. Show up for the process of sanctification. Submit to it. Submit to Him. And as we do, we get better at that. Instead of learning sin and growing in sin and getting better at sin, we learn love and we grow in grace and we're given more and more over to righteousness, we become more and more like Jesus, we're able to serve God more fully, more completely. And sometimes we do. And sometimes we don't. I mean, that's obvious too, because otherwise Paul wouldn't be exhorting us the way that he is. If we all did that all of the time, Paul wouldn't have to say, and you should really do this. But Paul is exhorting us because he knows that sometimes we don't go and grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes we don't give ourselves over more and more to serve him. And sometimes, sometimes I think what gets in the way is that last word. Sometimes the reason we don't give ourselves over more and more to serve him is we trip over that word serve. We stumble over it, we get stuck on it. I'm not going to serve anyone. I'm not going to be a slave to anyone. I, I, I trust me. I follow me. The only one in charge of me is going to be me. And, that, and that's, that's tragic. I was going to say ironic, but it's more than that. It's tragic. Because the only place God wants to lead us is the place he knows that we'll find the greatest joy. The place he knows we'll fulfill our highest purpose. The place that, that he knows... Because he made us, he that will enjoy the most peace. The place where the heart he's given us finds full expression. Analogy. Had a dog a few years ago named Onesimus. We named him Onesimus because he was always escaping. Onesimus was the runaway slave who was cellmates with Paul in the book of Philemon. He was a runaway, constantly. Now, only was fond of us, you know, sort of. We fed him, so. But over time, we realized that we, we weren't doing him any favors. In fact, we were keeping him Prisoner. He was part lab and, near as we could figure, part Australian sh- uh, uh, shepherd. He was bred to be outdoors. It was his nature to run and chase and herd things. And so, so we needed to get him to a place where his nature could find expression, where he could be the dog that God made him to be. So we took him to live on a farm. And, and the first couple times I said that, people thought I meant live on a farm. <laughs> oh yeah, we, we sorry June, Now we friends are friends who have a farm and, and he's lived there ever since and he runs and he chases stuff and he has a big old time all day. He finds joy he never had with us because he gets to be who he is. He gets to do what he was made to do. In exactly the same way, when God gave us a new heart, when we believe the gospel and God gave us a new heart, a new nature, we need to be in a place where that nature, the people that God made us to be, the people that God saved us to be, can find expression. And that is close to him. That is following him. That is, don't run away from it, embrace it, serving him. We won't be satisfied, not really and not for long, apart from him. We won't find joy, we won't be peaceful until we're in the place God prepared for us, each of us, specifically and uniquely, doing the things he has for us to do, and we'll only get there following him letting him lead taking orders from him but our flesh is our flesh and it wants so badly to find satisfaction in other places only tried being a city dog he tried to see if chewing up furniture would give him the same joy as running he tried to see if digging through the carpet and marking up the house would give him the same joy as chasing He tried to see if herding cars and small children would be as fun as herding sheep and cattle. But the whole time he knew what we were slow to pick up on. All that was just cheap substitutes. All of that was pathetic stand-ins for what he was really meant to be doing, for who he was really meant to be. He wasn't meant to be a house dog. So too with us. Anything not from God, not through God, not for God, is going to leave us depressed and discouraged and dissatisfied. Even if we're not sure why, because we're not as smart as dogs are. They figure it out faster than we do. Look again at verse 22. Now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. You can or not. You still have a choice, Paul says. Still have a decision to make. Really, really, it's a series of decisions. It's hour over hour, moment over moment, who will we serve? Verse 23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul is reminding us, choose carefully. Choose this day whom you will serve, and choose carefully. We quote that verse, verse 23, we quote that verse most often to unbelievers, don't we? To people who aren't Christ's followers. We quote that verse almost always talking about redemption. We say, hey, this way is death, this way is eternal life with Jesus, choose carefully. And there's nothing wrong with that. We need to keep doing that. We should do that more, every one of us but we have to also realize the same choice applies to us in this tense of our salvation. That's not just a justification verse. It's a sanctification verse. Every moment of every day, we have the same choice that we had the day that we came to Jesus. This way is Jesus. This way is death. Choose carefully. We can try to find satisfaction in sin, Or we can choose to follow Jesus. Choose carefully. I can choose to follow sin. I still can. I still do. I can choose to follow sin. Trust sin. Obey sin. Believe sin when it tells me this time will be different. No, this time it's really going to satisfy. No, this time it's going to be everything that I said it was going to be all of the other times, but it wasn't. But this time it will be. I can believe that and I can obey sin and I can go where sin leads. Or I can choose to follow and trust and obey God and find the peace and the joy that he promises, I can discover those aren't just things waiting for me in heaven. Those are things that are available to me. They're real. They're tangible. They're actual right now here today in this life. If I obey God. But see, there's that word again. There's that idea again. Obey. Serve God. Be his slave. My flesh hates that. My flesh doesn't want to serve anybody, even God. Why do you, why, why do you want to be like that, God? Why do you got to be like that? Why do, you have, why do you have to lock me up? Why do you have to lock me in the house? Why do, you, why do you just turn me loose and let me run? But see, that's the problem. We think it's God locking us in the house, keeping us prisoner. We're the ones who are shutting ourselves up locking ourselves away. We limit ourselves. We imprison ourselves. Jesus came. God sent his son to die to do what? To open the prison door. To set the captives free. And we're trying to put ourselves back into captivity. We're trying to undo that. We're trying to put the bars back on the windows. We're trying to to get the locks locked on the doors to keep him out. We'll put ourselves under any kind of bondage if it means I don't need to be a servant of God. It's crazy, but we do it, don't we? God says, follow me. I know where the best fields are. Stay close to me. I know where the best things to choose are. Listen to me. I know where you'll find the absolute greatest joy. Obey me. I'll keep you from getting hurt. And our response Okay, but well, why, why, why do you have to be in charge? Just, like, give me, give me a guide. Give me a map. Mark it. Green is good. Red is bad. And, and, and then I get to stay in charge. That's our attitude, right? Men's retreat, I don't know, three years ago, David Gusick was teaching. He had, he had this illustration that, man, it has stayed with me. He said, we want a map so we can follow the map and go at our own pace where we want to go on the map, pick our route, follow the route. We want a map so we can be in charge. God doesn't want to give us a map. He wants to be our guide. God the Holy Spirit says, I will be your guide. But, but our flesh says, Nah, just, just mark what's out of bounds. You know what? Let me lead you. I won't, even, I won't just keep you in bounds. I'll, I'll keep you in the very best places that are in bounds. Why won't you give me the map? Why won't you let me be your guide? That's the ongoing dialogue, the ongoing conversation, the ongoing tension we have with God so much of the time. Oh, how I wish that wasn't such a good illustration. And to come back to where we started, it's why so many questions about can Christians do this can Christians do that it's why so many questions are so off base when can a Christian do this how much of that can a Christian do it misses the point it misses the point completely we're not serving a rule book are we God is saying I'm a person and he is he's the true and living God and he loves us. He says, trust me. I won't let you down. Trust me. I'm not going to hurt you. Trust me. I'm going to lead you to the very best places. Follow me. When we, ask, when we ask ourselves, when we ask each other, is this a line? Is that a line? Does this door open? Can I, can I pry this window up? How can I get to the other side? How can I get to where the fun is? We're not realizing we're on the outside, trying to open the door, trying to open the window to get back into bondage, to get back in the place God has set us free from, to get back in prison. There's a reason the door is locked. There's a reason the window is nailed shut because God is trying to keep us close to him where it's safe. No, tell me what the rules are so I can be in control. Listen to my voice. Let me take control. Uh, tell, tell, me, tell me how much I can serve myself, how long I can serve myself before I cross a line. How about follow me and you don't have to worry about lines. I could I, I could answer the question, by the way. Just just so you understand, this isn't a long exercise in avoiding a controversial topic. This isn't even a hard one, and I don't know why it's controversial. Read Proverbs. And what you don't get you know, whatever Proverbs leaves you confused about, read Ephesians 5. I don't think this is hard. But it's also not enough for you to hear it from me. Shouldn't be enough needs to not be enough. You need to hear that for yourself from God. Because if I'm I'm the one who's always saying, here's a line and there's a line, hey, look, there's another line, stay on this side of the line, then I'm working against what God wants to be doing in all of our lives. Because pretty soon, if I'm saying, there's a line, there's another line, look out for the line, mind the gap, it's not about God anymore, is it? It's about the line, and it's about the big guy making the line. And as soon as I draw the line, as soon as I declare a line, what am I doing? I'm inviting an argument about the line. Why is that the line? And hey, by the way, why do you get to decide? Who made you the line maker? And, and you'd be Right. But by that time, it doesn't matter because by the time we get there, we've both already lost because we're arguing with each other. We're focused with each other. It's a horizontal transaction. We're frustrated with each other when we should be vertical. We should be focused on God. We should be listening to God. We should be hearing from God. We should be asking God, what do you have for us? Where do you want to lead us? Don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying there's no place for exhorting each other. There is. Of course there is. Paul's doing it. There must be. I'm not saying there's no place for challenging each other. There's a place for rebuking each other in love. The point I'm making is is, is what we need to challenge each other to do is seek God. We need to challenge each other to wait on God. We need to challenge each other to hear from God and when we do, obey God. We need to remind each other to trust God and attune our heart to him and wait on him and follow him day over day, moment by moment. Not to avoid sin. That's not the goal. The goal is not to avoid sin. The the, the, the goal is to love God and follow God. If we do that, sin takes care of itself. We need to remind each other to watch Him. Listen to Him. Pay close attention to Him. Be in a relationship with Him. A lot of sisters are at the women's retreat, so guys, I'm going to ask you, when you were dating your wife, courting your wife, did she give you a set of rules? Did she give you a three-ring binder? Here are your do's and don'ts. Here's the stuff you always need to do. Here's a list of what you never need to do. I'm guessing no. And I'm guessing when you got married, you didn't pop open your three-ring binder and put in the tab and put in, okay, well, here's the updated version. Here's here's the marriage version. So, So how did you learn, guys? How did you learn to love and bless and serve your wife? You watched. You talked. You listened. You tried things. And then you watch what happened, and talked about it, and listened, and tried things. It's not static, is my point. You're not having the same relationship that you did when you first met, when you were first married. It's not a static, rules-based thing that you can reduce to a process map. It's dynamic, it's organic, it's fluid, it's growing, I hope. But the first step was you decided to pay attention. The first step was to decide you cared about the answer. You wanted to learn your spouse. And the closer attention you paid, the better you got at it. You learned what it was to serve them. Some of you were saying, you don't know my wife. I got a rule book. Okay, if you did, no one's laughing. If you did... (laughs) I promise you it wasn't accurate if you got a rule book I promise you there were more exceptions than rules there because think about it there would have to be a whole chapter on what it means when she says it's fine (laughs) it's either it's either a chapter or it's just one line never the same thing twice Not because that's how women are. Not because that's how women are. That's what serving is. I spent almost a decade as an assistant pastor serving a senior pastor. And when I first started with that role, I looked at this man and I said, I don't know how I'm going to do this because on any given day, it's impossible to know what he's going to choose to care about. I, I looked around, and I, and I went to the last person who had it, and I said, where's, where's the process map? Where's the decision tree? If this, then this. He said, no. <laughs> and he walked away. <laughs> <laughs> but even if that had existed, it still wouldn't be serving. That would be managing. We manage processes. We serve people. And, and yeah, over time, you can, you can develop some principles. You can find some parameters. But more than anything, you still have to know and serve the person. And God's a person. What's true in our marriages, what's true in our ministries is true... For our lives as Christ followers, the greatest blessings are waiting when we listen, when we observe, when we seek to understand, when we respond to the heart of the person we're serving. God's a person. We get to seek him and we get to study him so that we can all the better serve him. Can a Christ follower drink this, smoke that, get tattoos like this, kiss someone they're not married to, wear certain kinds of clothes, listen to certain music, watch certain shows? Ask him. Ask him what's true for you. It might be a different answer than me or the person sitting next to you. Ask him. If you're a Christ follower, then Christ is the one you're following. Ask him. We're servants, we say, of the true and living God. If God is the one we're serving, we should ask him. Ask him in his word. A lot of the answers to a lot of our questions are here. A lot of them in black and white, very explicitly. Some implicitly. Some are revealed by the character of the one that we're serving. But ask God in his word, because whatever the answer is, it'll never contradict what's in his word. Ask God in the body that He's called to Himself, the group of believers indwelt by His Spirit. What do mature believers who are indwelt by the Spirit and living in the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, following Christ, what do they have to say? Ask a few of them, safety in a multitude of counselors. What do they have to say, and how do they support it with God's Word? Ask God in prayer. God did not create us to keep us at arm's length. He didn't create us to play cat and mouse with us. He created us for relationship. If he doesn't answer right away, it doesn't mean he didn't hear the question. It doesn't mean that he doesn't care about the answer. Trust his timing. Wait on him. But before we do any of that, the first step, the the necessary first step, is to decide you're going to care about the answer. Decide before you hear it, you're going to obey the answer. To decide whatever God says, I'm going to follow his direction because I've decided to serve him. I've made myself his slave. And slaves don't make assumptions. Slaves don't guess. Slaves ask. How do you want me to serve you today? Where do you want me to go? What do you want me to do? How would you have me redeem the time you've given me? What would you have me pay attention to? What should I prioritize? What should I say? What should I not say? What should I care about? What should I leave in the past? How will you lead me today? How can I serve you with this person in this situation? What does it look like to love what's in front of me right here in your name? What's the best way to worship you in this moment? If I do this, will it worship you? Can I do this as praise unto you? Is this obedience or rebellion? God, I want to hear from you so I can serve you. And we will. I promise you that we will. When we decide that's what we want. When we decide we aren't going to settle for rules and maps and lists. We will hear from Him. He will lead us when we decide we want Him. Lord, oh, thank You so much for Your mercy. How many times have You heard us say, we want You, we're here to serve You, we'll follow You anywhere? And moments later, our hearts are rebelling against you. How many times, Lord, have we done that dance? And how many times have you graciously come back and offered your hand and said, let's try again. Let's do this again. Let's, let's, let's learn. Let's grow. Thank you that you don't expect perfection. Thank you that... You are growing us. You are sanctifying us. You are molding us and making us little by little, painstakingly more into the image of your son who served you perfectly, who did everything you gave him to do, who did nothing that you didn't give for him to do. Jesus was a servant, is a servant, Make us servants like him, and thank you, Lord, for the grace when we turn to the left or to the right. Thank you that you always welcome us back. You always throw the robe over our shoulder, put the ring on our finger. You always embrace us. There's always another fatted calf to kill when we come back. And no matter where we were when we walked in this morning, We come back to you now. We choose you now. We place ourselves under your authority. We ask you now. We are your servants. Would you lead us? Would you love us? Would you help us to remember those are the same thing?